wilt. First Chronicles chapter 21. There's a parallel account of this that Samuel gives. Both of them very, very similar, very identical in their narrative and how they portray the story. But uh, we're going to look at the uh, account that is recorded here in First Chronicles chapter 21. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would bless the message and speak to our hearts. Lord, may we learn some things from the passage that we'll be looking at today to be a help to us, that Your Holy Spirit will teach and guide us in all truth, bring understanding to the passage. So, Father, I pray for the next few moments You'd help us to take the burdens that we walked in here with. And I know that many have very very deep burdens, very very uh, sorrowful, very heavy burdens that they came here with this morning. I pray that You'd help us to put them aside for a few moments. Some that came to church and really have no real real interest in the things of the Lord, they came. And uh, I pray that for the next few moments You would capture their heart and their attention, their minds, bring them to the place of understanding the teaching and the preaching of Your your Word. And then, Father, that You would bring uh, conviction where it's needed. And may we learn to appropriately answer to that conviction. That there would be a yieldedness of our heart to say, Yes, Lord. Whatever it is in the truth of Your Word that is shown to us today, that we would yield ourselves to it and apply it to our lives. Guide and direct our thoughts and our prayers. The speaking of Your Word, may it all bring glory to You today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. David is coming off of some wonderful, wonderful times of God's deliverance. If you'll turn back just a few pages uh, to chapter 18 of First Chronicles. God is doing some great things. He had just established... Um, a covenant with David. God had just established a covenant with David in chapter 17. And David is, is really at the high point, if you will, of, of his, uh, his kingship. And in chapter 18, in verse number 1, uh, we find that, uh, that, that God gives David victory over the Philistines. Uh, and so we find that uh, there's a wonderful victory given there. In verse number 2, we find that he is given victory over Moab. And he smote Moab, and the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. In verse number 3, he has victory over uh, Zuba, and David smote uh, Hadar Ezar, king of uh, Zoba, unto Hamath, and he went to uh, establish his dominion by the river Euphrates. In verse number 5, he has victory over Syria. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to the help of Hadar King of uh, Zobah, David slew the Syrians, two and twenty thousand men. In verse number twelve of the same chapter, he has victory over the Edomites. Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, slew the Edomites in the valley of Salt, eighteen thousand. In chapter nineteen, in verse number one, 
we find that there's a, a, a time of David's humility that takes place, and he's still a, a humble at this point. But in verse number 6 of that chapter, we find that God once again gives victory over the Ammonites. In verse number 16 of chapter 19, he gives victory over the Syrians. In chapter 20, in verse number 1, he gives victory over the Ammonites. And in chapter 20, in verse number 4, he gives victory over the Philistines again, the giants that are in Philistia. And we kind of get the picture here that David is coming off of a winning season, if you will, where God just gives them victory after victory after victory after victory after victory. And there are times in our lives where it seems like uh, God is doing great things. And we, we sing the song that was written years ago, the God on the mountain is still God in the valleys. And the implication of the song is there are mountaintop times in our lives <coughs> spiritually where God seems to bring victory after victory. We cannot lose. We're excited about the things of God. We have the Spirit of God uh, empowering us and giving us boldness to speak. There's liberty to share the gospel with other people. Uh, there seems to be a, a boldness of just hating Satan. I, I was watching the news this uh, past weekend uh, about the uh, fellow that was uh, arrested and charged with the hate crime for chopping the head off of a satanic idol that was at a Capitol building. Can I tell you this? That's the kind of boldness that a lot of Christians ought to have. And I... I, 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 I Certainly do not believe that what the, they're charging him with is saying it's a hate crime other than saying I hate Satan, and I do. But I will tell you this, that there are times that we have that kind of a spirit about us, and then there are times that we find ourselves in, and they tend to come after the times of great victory. And here we find David in chapter 21. I want you to notice what verse number 1 says here. In the middle of all these victories, and that as David has experienced the blessings of God over and over and over and over, the Bible says, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Can I tell you this? I don't care how strong of a Christian you are. I don't care how mighty the battles seem to be in your life that God is giving you victory over. It is no time to let your guard down. For Satan, in the middle of the greatest time of David's victory, comes to him and provokes him to do something that was they were not supposed to do. David is provoked by Satan to number Israel. And what, what that meant was this. It was not a numbering to just find out do we have a lot of Israelites? It was to find out how many men of war that you have. You say, Pastor, how do you know that that was what the numbering was about? Because that's what's recorded. Notice in verse number 2, And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people in a hundred times so many more as they be, but let my but my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then doth my lord require this thing? Why will he, speaking of the king, the, the lord, being a cause of trespass to Israel? 
I, I, I'm going to bring one truth that I, I don't want you to miss today. I, we're, the, the whole message, there's going to be some, some foundational things we're going to give you here. There's going to be one truth. There's one thing I want you to walk away from today, from this passage. We're going to see it at the very end. I want you to follow with me because the foundational things are, are so important for us as we build up to this one important truth. And I would say this on the onset, that we need to, in the times of victory and great victory in our lives, we need to be careful lest we fall. The Apostle Paul, one of the great Christians of all times, spoke of the fact that he had to daily bring his body into captivity, his mind into captivity, his thoughts into captivity, to the obedience of Christ. He had to buffet his body daily. He had to put the the self-will down. He had to put the old nature down. Daily he was battling these things. He was fighting these things. And he said, I do these things lest I myself should become a castaway. The Bible talks about a man who thinks he stands to take heed lest he fall. The idea that we've got to be so careful in the times where God is giving great victory in the Christian life that we don't say, <coughs> I don't have to worry about Satan anymore. I remember years ago, I was a, a song leader in our church in Florida. My dad was still the pastor and a, a dear friend of mine. Even to this day, he would I think would do anything. If I had a problem, I could pick up the phone and call him. He'd be there. And he had been out of church for a long, long time. I remembered when, a, when I was a kid, he was a member of our church and he and his wife got upset over something, and they left the church for, for years they left the church. And I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s when they came back to our church, and they were excited about the things of the Lord. And he was talking to me one night. We were at, he got there a little bit early for, for choir practice, and we were talking before the service. And he said, boy, I just have been so enjoying. He'd been there about a year and a half or two years again back in our church. And he said, I've been so enjoying growing in the things of the Lord again. And he said, he said you know, I, said, I went down that road. Of getting away from God. He said, for years I got away from Him. He said, now I'm back. And he made a statement to me, and when I heard it, I thought, oh, that's, that's a horrible statement to make. He said, Brother Greg, you don't have to worry about me anymore. He said, I've been down that road. I'll never go there again. And I thought, here's a man who's on the mountaintop. Several months later, something happened to one of the members of his family. And he got upset, and he quit church again. The one who said, you'll never have to worry about me again. I've been there. I, I've, I've gone through that, and I, don't, I know it's not the way I should have gone. And I'm back with the Lord. I'm walking with the Lord now. And when he was at the pinnacle of, of God doing some great things in his life and growing in the Christian life, Satan got to him. And can I tell you, you got to be careful that we take heed lest we fall. The Bible tells us that Satan is as a roaring lion walking to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. His intent is not only to destroy your testimony, his intent is to destroy you. To devour you. To make you of no effect. And here's David, and you would think of all men, a man after God's own heart. A man that we study in Sunday school so often. Just, I wish I could have a heart like David had. Uh, he, he was so close to God and, and his relationship with God was so great that God made a covenant with David that David's kingdom was going to be an everlasting kingdom. That one of these days when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to sit on his millennial throne, it's going to be the throne of David he sits upon. 
This is the man after God's own heart. And even though he wasn't a perfect man, had such a heart for the things of the Lord. And if David, if David can be provoked in the middle of great victory, then who are you and I to think we cannot be? And he says in verse 1 that Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel, which they were not supposed to do. His servant Joab is given the job and the task to go around. Joab tries to talk him out of it and says, David, you're going to be the cause of this iniquity, this trespass against Israel, or to Israel against God. And notice in verse 4 he says, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. And all they of Israel (coughs) were a thousand thousand. Now, if you know your math, that's a million there. And a hundred thousand men which drew the sword. Now, that's how many were in Israel. A million and one hundred thousand men that drew the sword. Notice he's not speaking here of women and children. It's not just a census of this nation. He's talking about numbering the men of war. They're, they're conquering everybody. They're, they're having victory over everybody. And David's worried about his army? Really? But isn't that just like us? God gives us victory after victory after victory in our lives, and then we begin to worry about the very next little thing that comes our way? And we, we have a lack of faith in the middle of some of the greatest victories of our lives? Verse number 6, But Levi and Benjamin... I, I'm sorry, uh, finish verse number 5 here. Judah... Uh, was four hundred three score and ten thousand men, so he has four hundred seventy thousand in in the nation of Judah. So you have a million one hundred thousand. You have four hundred seventy thousand in Judah. That's a lot of people that draw the sword, men that draw the sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. David probably should have listened to him. Notice the next verse. And God was what? Displeased with this thing. Therefore, He smote Israel. I wonder how many times throughout history God has allowed Satan to provoke one of His children. We know that He did Job, did He not? In fact, when... He was talking with Satan is almost as if God was bragging on Job. He said, Hast thou considered my servant Job? In other words, Satan, look at this man. This man is one who hates evil. He skews evil. He's an upright man. He, he follows after me. He loves me. He longs for me. And Satan said, Well, why wouldn't he? He's, you've given him everything. You've never done anything to bring any persecution his way. And God said, Okay. Go ahead, Satan. You can touch him. Just just don't take his life. Don't touch his body. And Satan devastates Job, doesn't he? We've got to be careful. I wonder how often throughout our lives God allows Satan to provoke us. Maybe as a time of testing. Maybe seeing how we'll respond. David 
did not respond appropriately. He was provoked by Satan to do these things. In verse number 7, the Bible says, And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he smote Israel. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, here we find David, when God smites Israel, we find David kind of coming to God and repenting of that and saying, Lord, I'm sorry. (coughs) I have done foolishly. I should not have done what I did. And yet God brings something upon him. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Choose thee. Either three years famine, or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coast of Israel. Now therefore, advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord. Now I want you to know why David does this. He tells us why here. He says, For very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hand of man. And I just want to take a moment to say this. God's justice at this time in history is always tempered with His mercy. But there's going to come a day when Revelation tells us that His justice will be poured out without mixture. It will no longer be tempered with His mercy. But the fullness of His wrath against the sin of man will be poured out one day. You say, what's the important thing about telling people to be saved? I don't want them to have to go through that. You think things are bad now. You think that you've seen the the pestilence and you've seen the hand of the Lord now. I cannot imagine what it's going to be like when He pours out His wrath without mercy. David says, I would rather have the hand of the Lord against me because very great are His mercies. And if I'm going to put myself in the hands of anyone... I'm going to put him in the hands of God. Notice what the Bible says in verse 14. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel. And there fell of Israel 70,000 men. 70,000 men. Could you imagine how David felt? 70,000 men who no longer, their families are left without a father, without a husband. Not for sin that they had done, but for sin that David had done. Can I encourage you in this? You need to understand this truth, and we all need to understand this truth. Our sin never affects just us. Never affects just us. It will always impact someone else. So he slays 70,000 men, and God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld... And here's that mercy David was speaking of. And he repented him of the evil. And said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite was on Mount Moriah. 
just outside and overlooking Jerusalem. In verse 15, the Bible tells us that God sent an angel unto Jerusalem, and the intent of it was to destroy the entire city. That's what it says here, that He was sent to destroy it, meaning Jerusalem. And as He was destroying, so He was in the process of doing so, the Lord said, it is enough. David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord. Verse 16, David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine actually with your own eyes seeing an angel of the Lord with a sword drawn, ready to execute judgment, and he's staying his hand I imagine the next few moments, David's mind is racing. What am I to do? And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be upon be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel... And his four sons with him hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat, and and as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David, and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face on the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord." Thou shalt grant it me for the full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. I love this story of Ornan. Listen to what Ornan's response was. It says in verse 23, And Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee, and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings." and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for a meat offering. All David asked for was the land. And Ornan comes to him and tells his king, if it's going to stay the hand of God, I'll give you the oxen too. And I'll give you the the instruments that I use, the wooden instruments. And the wheat that I've already harvested, I'll, I'll give that also as a meat offering unto the Lord. And then he makes this statement. I love this statement. I give it all. I've heard a lot of messages on this. I give it all. Not holding anything back. You put yourself in ordinance shoes for a few moments. He's out there laboring with his four sons. They're bringing in the harvest. It's their... Livelihood is what they use to live on. The land, I'm sure they have worked. They've sweat. They've probably bled. 
they've put labor into. The oxen that helps them produce the work and their livelihood to feed their families are being given. The instruments are also being burnt and given. The harvest itself, the thing that they were going to depend upon for the next year to feed their family, is being given. Ornan said, I give it all. I love the spirit of Ornan, don't you? By the way, I think every Christian, when it comes to the things of the Lord, ought to have that kind of spirit. But that's not our message today. I want you to notice David's response. And King David said to to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. And I want you to notice this statement. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. So David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. David had an out. David was going to get off pretty easy here. He had a servant of his that was willing to give everything he had to stay the hand of God. To allow David to get things right with God. To allow David to sacrifice to God. And it would have been easy for David to say thank you to Ornan and to do that. But David, knowing that the heart of the psalmist as a heart that was after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart, says, I'm not going to sacrifice to God something that does not cost me. We learn a valuable truth, and I want to leave you with this one thought today that David was so emphatic about. And that is this, when it comes to our service to the Lord, when it comes to our obedience to the Lord, are we only willing to do so if it does not cost? When it comes to saying, I want to share the gospel with others, do we only do so to the extent that it does not cost? We've got a group of folks right now that are already beginning to work on vacation Bible school this year, and I'm praying that God will give us a great vacation Bible school this year. And I would say this, do we want to do something like this and reach out into our community and it not cost? David pays 600 shekels of gold to Ordan for all of this. But I wonder what it is when we serve the Lord, when we're obedient to the Lord, what does it cost us? Would we continue to serve Him? Would we continue to be obedient to His Word, to be a one with a testimony for the cause of Christ, one that would be bold to say, I'm a Christian, if it cost us our reputation? We're living in a world where truly, if things can continue to go the way that they are, sooner or later we're going to be looked at by the world as those who are foolish. 
those who are the deviant ones in society. In fact, we're already pretty much at that point. We get around the loss. Do we try to blend in so that we don't stand out? So that we're not ridiculed? Or do we put a testimony forth that shows forth the wonderful power of our God? Are we salt and light in this world? Do we stand for the Lord regardless of the consequences? Are we worried about what someone's going to say about us at work? Are we worried about what someone's going to say about us who lives next door to us if they find out I'm a Christian? Are we only willing to do these things if they don't cost us something? What about if it gets to the point where it costs you your job? By the way, we're already at that day. There are people today in the United States of America that have lost their careers in order to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we bow the knee so we simply could save our jobs? Are we only willing to do that which does not cost us anything? What if it meant going to jail? What if it was put to us in such a way that if we did not stop obeying Christ, that we would be arrested for it? You say, Pastor, that will never happen. It's already happened. And it's already here. There are men and women in jails and prisons around the United States of America today that were arrested for nothing more than standing for what was right. They're that which was true. And the question is, are we only willing to follow God as long as it does not cost us anything? Or could we get to the place where we purpose in our hearts and we say, Lord, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to serve. I'm going to follow Your Word no matter what it costs me. And before you make a decision, and that's the question that's put to us this hour, before you make that decision, I'm not asking you to make a decision, I'm asking you to live it. Is it something you're willing not only to commit to, but something you're willing to live by? It's a serious thing. It's a very sober thing. To make a vow to God, to make a decision for God, and then not live up to it. We should not take them lightly. I was talking with someone just this week. We have had the luxury the last 250 or 40 some years now, for the most part, of having religious liberty. It's been that liberty and the lack of persecution, the lack of us having to pay the price that has lulled Christianity into not only a sense of complacency, but even to a place of decline when it comes to obedience to God's Word. We've lost the very fact that we even have in our hands God's Word. Where there are Christians that are out there today that even deny that this book is the very Word of God itself. Why? Because we've enjoyed not having to pay a price. 
David had the prime opportunity. It was afforded to him. It was offered to him willingly. It would not have cost him a thing. And David said no. He said, I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. Would God, we would have Christians, men and women, all around our country that would say, I am there. I am faithful. I am steadfast. I am unmovable. I will always be abounding in the work of the Lord, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. I'm going to strive to have a testimony for the Lord. I'm going to strive to let this world know that there's a God in heaven that came to this world because of His love for them and died in their place so that they could be redeemed and saved and reconciled to God no matter the cost. There's a number of stories that could be easily told. I'm reminded of one such story of the five missionaries who back in the 60's went down to South America to try to reach the Alka Indians. Two of them were named Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. I've studied and read the story through Gates of Splendor. Read their story of their attempts to reach this tribe that had never been reached and was a vicious, cannibalistic tribe. Murdered everybody that ever tried to come down there. And these men made some progress. Nate Saint, who flew the plane, had left a wonderful, bright career. Had graduated top of his class. Jim Elliott persuaded him and some others in the group had persuaded him to come down and fly and help get them to the place to get to these Indians. They were there for several weeks trying to reach them and had great success for the first several weeks. And one day at the regular time of checking in with the radio, there was no response on the other end of the radio. A rescue party was made up 24 hours or so later and they went down the river. And on the beach, they found the airplane stripped of all of its fabric. And they found several of the spear-torn bodies of the missionaries. Elizabeth Elliot continued the work. What many people don't realize is that finally they were able to reach the Aka Indians. And Elizabeth Elliot herself had the wonderful privilege to lead to Christ the man who speared her own husband. He could not fathom the forgiveness that she gave him. And in one of their diaries, the men had kept journals. And one of them, they wrote this phrase. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. 
We're laying up treasures somewhere. Are we only obedient? Are we only willing to serve so much as it does not cost us? Or would we tell God, Lord, I'm here. I'm yours. No matter the cost. No matter the cost. Let's stand together, shall we, with his bowed? Father, I pray that you would bless the message this morning. Very simple. And yet I believe so needed. Lord, in the time that we're living, I pray that you would help there be more and more Christians that would be willing to say, Lord, I give it all. It's going to cost me. But it does not matter. No matter how much it costs, 